I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's guests had one of the largest and best-placed new businesses in the market. This is because it had a long head start on the class of 2020. Before the market turn became obvious last year, it already had $1.7 billion in capital committed and underwriting teams in place. Then, with the hardening in full swing, it accelerated its growth plan and almost doubled that capital base. Convex's chairman and CEO Stephen Catlin and deputy CEO Paul Brand have had impeccable timing and are looking to use the benefit of all their long experience building Catlin into a global specialty insurer and reinsurer to good use with their new project. It's clear from this interview that they intend to do everything better, stronger and faster. And what's more, they plan to enjoy the journey more along the way. Here we dissect the market opportunity for this very large legacy-free startup from every angle and leave no topic off the table. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA Claim Service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Stephen and Paul, thank you so much for taking some time. You must be hugely busy building a business in such an exciting environment. Why don't we just sort of check in and see where you are in the convex build? And obviously, you've raised a lot more capital recently as well. So tell us all about where you are at the moment and where you're most excited about deploying some of that new capital you've just raised. Yeah, Mark, it's lovely to be speaking to you. And um, particularly a nice sunny day in London, it's not going to be very long before we can do this in the office. I mean, as you said, we have raised some additional capital towards the end of last year. And we are finding quite a few opportunities to deploy that well. We're seeing rates increase across not every line of business, but the majority of lines of business. And we're also seeing a lot of markets rethinking their risk appetite, taking a step backwards, going through various change periods. So we're actually in a very good spot of just starting to step forward a little bit and finding some really good opportunities. Does that sound like you're stepping forward towards risk, being a little aggressive when others are being very defensive or running away? I wouldn't say it as as being particularly aggressive. We're seeing rate increases across insurance lines quite 
close to 20%. We're seeing slightly less in reinsurance lines, but you don't have to be an aggressive in a market where you're seeing those types of price increases. So it's much more that the brokers are coming into you saying, do you want to write this? We need your support on this. Um, is that more the story than you actively seeking to be put on business? Yeah, there's an awful lot of gaps. And there's an awful lot of people who've stopped doing things that they've been doing for long periods of time. So what sort of classes are you most happy? You've mentioned, mentioned a couple there, but what's, if we can get into some specifics of which ones that you're most happy with at the moment, without giving away your business secrets, of course. Yeah, no, no, I'd never do that anyway, even though it's pretty played for everybody to see. It's a co-insurance marketplace. So one of the joys of London and Bermuda is there's a great deal of transparency as to what's going on. I mean, it's the lines of business that really sort of fitted into our plan at the get-go, those specialty areas of insurance and reinsurance. We're probably a bit more confident as we think about the reinsurance lines around some of the shorter tail lines as opposed to some of the longer tail lines. But there are plenty of areas for us to deploy capital at the moment. And we're very um, fortunate. We know we're blessed. We bring with us network. We bring with us relationships, both with brokers and indeed policyholders. And we bring with us an historic reputation, which we can build on. I mean... Convex is not Catlin. We would never intend to be Catlin. It's an evolution from there in every sense of that word. I mean, that includes our whole culture. It's an evolving beast. It's a moving beast. But to be free of the backyard challenges that the majority of the market has today, which are of magnitude, not to have to worry about that and just to concentrate looking forward, we are well aware that we're very lucky and very blessed. I remember we signed off the last time we did any kind of formal interviews almost two years ago, early summer 2019, when you were at a much earlier stage. And I remember at the time we were talking about rating adequacy and you were saying, we're not there yet. We're on a journey. Hopefully we're not actually at price adequacy yet. Do you think we're, are we arriving there now? I think it depends on which class of business you're talking about. I think some product lines are much closer to adequacy than others and others there's ways to go. And that particularly applies to the longer tail accounts, actually. But you're happy with the momentum. It will be getting there. Yeah, I think, see, the dynamics of the marketplace at the moment are quite different than we've ever experienced before, because the change has been led by the insurance market rather than the reinsurance market. And that's the first time that's happened in 50 years, which is a long time. And then you say, well, why has that happened? What's the causation of that? And the answer is we don't actually know, but it feels like the direct market is closer to the challenges in the reinsurance market is and therefore are acting more quickly we certainly feel that the reinsurance market has yet to recognize not only the exposure in the casualty market but also you know with COVID-19 it's almost like the reinsurance market kicked that into touch on the basis it's too difficult to deal with which in many ways I can understand that we can understand that but what it does mean is that this replenishing of the capital through increasing in reserves is likely to go on for some time. People have compared this to 9-11, which is fair. There are some differences. At one magnitude, 9-11 in Cauchy Hall then was circa 50 to $60 billion, say 25-ish, Cauchy, 28 billion-ish, WTC, 9-11 itself. Within two years of that happening, the market pretty much knew where it was in both areas. And, okay, the Twin Towers itself took a bit of time to sort out on coverage disputes, but actually that was quite a small part of the 28 billion of that loss. So within two years, the market had a pretty fair idea where it's at. 
very senior broker said to me last week, after the first time I've heard a senior broker say this, actually, you know what, Stephen, I think COVID-19 could well take 10 years to unwind or unscramble. Over much of the last couple of years, you've been predicting that those casualty reserving deficits will be a very large drag on the sector going forward. I take it nothing really has happened to change your opinion. Well, approximately 25 billion has been recognised so far, part of probably not less than 100 billion. So it's only 25% recognised. And you look at COVID-19, it's probably about 35% or less has been recognised. And the losses don't go away. That doesn't happen. In fact, with complex losses, they tend to increase, not decrease. So there's a long ways to go. And I think instead of knowing where we are within two years, it may be closer to five years before we have a real handle on where the market is. So do you think the market's just mostly muddling through and paying as it goes? It's very difficult to tell that. I mean, I think we've asked that question quite often. Are people got their heads in the sand? Are people too scared to really spill the beans and say what they've really got? Are people just misunderstanding the dynamics of the marketplace? Are they misinterpreting, for example, in COVID-19, the American courts, which have pretty much closed down for a year. So once they open back up again, we're going to find out a bit more about how the courts are really going to treat the industry. And I think that is an unknown. It is an uncertainty. It's very difficult to make a sweeping generalisation. I think most people are concerned. I'd say that. And people are trying to work out ways to handle their concern. And I think there's a lot of dispute as to how policies, particularly around COVID, will respond both in insurance and then how reinsurance policies might respond. And so very typically when there is a lot of uncertainty, step reserving starts to become a feature of how the market deals with it because you just have that gap between uh, what an insurer might be saying they're going to collect from their reinsurance programme versus what the reinsurer might say is covered. And until that actually gets disputed, arbitrated, sorted out in one way or another, you can hold two different opinions at the same time. And I think that is a bit of a feature of what's going on now. And I think it's one of the reasons why, as Stephen said, it sort of makes this market a bit different, is until the good news that we're going to get from price increases, coverage reductions, uh, those things, until those start showing through in terms of additional profits and outweigh the bad news that's coming, particularly with the, the legacy markets, until that happens then very difficult for prices to start to moderate. You mentioned about reinsurance perhaps sitting on the fence. Is that really perhaps its only position at the moment? I had um, Keith Wolf of Swiss Re US saying that he didn't think that the US market would have a huge amount of disputes because there's so many sort of ISO wordings and, and standard wordings with virus exclusions. That they weren't, he didn't have a gut feeling that there'd be that many disputes. Do you think at the moment it's simply too early to say because there's not enough information, because we don't know how each seedling is going to behave and how they're going to want to claim. I think there's an aspect of that. There's no doubt that the challenges stateside are different to the challenges in London and Europe, actually. And that's really around business interruption. What is the trigger and has it been triggered? As I say, I think it's early to say. I think it's early to really know what the American courts are going to say. We do know what they're capable of. I mean, Unfortunately, Brandon and I are old enough to remember asbestosis and seepage and pollution and all that good stuff. And the reinterpretation of a contract wording by an American court is something that's happened before. The cynical part of me says, well, if it's happened before, why wouldn't it happen again? 
And also, as you move out of the SME accounts and more into the risk-managed, intermediated, the chances of those accounts being on ISO standard wordings is pretty limited. On the general point about the harder market, market hardening being carried out by the primary market, by the cedents and not by reinsurers for the first time in many, many years, what's been the dynamics for that have reinsurers been right to allow that to happen because obviously they will simply benefit on the proportional side particularly and not pile any more pressure onto onto cedents and just simply get the benefit of those underlying rate increases or do you think they could have reinsurers could have been pushing harder i think it's quite difficult for the reinsurance market to push a lot harder until such time it's recognized the losses how can you draw an extra price when you haven't actually recognized the loss in the first instance And it's beginning to look like this is going to take quite a long time to unwind. I mean, what do you think, Brando? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. But you've also seen probably the reinsurance market was in slightly better condition going into this, probably slightly more margin. I know it had been negatively affected by some of the cat losses in 1718, but also there'd been an awful lot more retro purchase during that period of time. So so I just maybe that part of the market is just not feeling the pain as much as the insurance market is. There's much more pro rata character being placed in the insurance market in, in recent years than has been historically the case. Frankly, if the direct market is struggling to recognise its exposure on casualty long tail, the reinsurance market is almost, when it's pro rata, almost in, inevitably going to lag behind that, but they're one step removed. That's not a criticism of that marketplace, it's just a a statement of reality, I think. That's why this is such a, an unusual time. Nicholas Soane says to me time and time again, he's Winston Churchill's grandson, you know, Stephen, we live in an unprecedented time since 1945. Well, he of all people should know what that means when he says it, actually. But I think he's right. We just have never experienced this before. Governments haven't. Businesses haven't. Insurers and reinsurance haven't. We didn't see it coming. We probably should have seen it coming. We probably should have realised, everybody, by the way, I look back and think, how the hell did we think about this in greater detail about the inevitable financial consequences globally of a global shutdown? There's a whole ton of unknowns out there, and it's still unknown today. Who knows whether we're going to get another wave in the UK? Everybody hopes not. Everybody hopes that the vaccine is going to really work well. But truthfully, we don't know. We don't know whether the vaccines are really going to cover all the variants. It's clear that the variants are more infectious than the original COVID-19 was. I think that has been proven. But it is very, very uncertain. Anybody who says, I know exactly where I am with COVID-19, they live on a different planet to Paul and I, because we're quite happy to say we don't actually know. We can surmise as best as we can, but to claim we know is, for us, one step too far. Taking this back in towards looking at the dynamics that we have in the market at the moment, which are strange, to say the least, how has that affected your business planning when you're looking to build Convex? You construct your, what is your optimal portfolio, your sort of fantasy league portfolio, and then it gets hit by reality, doesn't it? Now that it seems to be much more a market for specialty insurance rather than reinsurance, have those dynamics changed your thinking about what is a an optimal portfolio today? And have you sort of acted upon that? I mean, not hugely. I mean, to be fair, I mean, in that sort of period of time when the company was in existence prior to COVID, so that end of April 19 through to essentially February 2020, 
Our mission then was to really try and garner an outsized share of talented underwriters, whether they were in insurance or insurance alliance. Because you can't suddenly go, oh, look, that part of the market's got fantastic. Now let's start to deploy. You have to get yourself ready before the market is ready. And uh, particularly on the reinsurance side, we were largely built, and we're still adding bits and pieces, but we were largely built as we went into the end of 19 and into 2020. Reinsurance has been built, as we expected to be, far more through the 2020 period. So yeah, we've been sort of adding teams of uh, talented individuals all the way through that year. That would have happened whether COVID was a feature of the market or not. But at the same time, the market has probably accelerated faster than we might have expected. And we've tried to respond to that. In every other industry, people target market share as a measure of success. But for very sound reasons, in insurance, talk of market share is a no-no. But could we target something else? What about market presence? Because isn't performing well in the insurance world and outperforming on profitability really down to your market presence? After all, you can't place risks for clients you haven't met, and you can't underwrite business you haven't been shown. M&A and innovation do drive market presence, but it can also be steadily achieved at a lower cost through brand building. Brand building works in part by activating a bias we all have called the availability heuristic. It simply means that when our brains are searching for an answer, say which broker or insurer to contact, the answer that comes most readily to mind is deemed to be the right one. In short, the greater your brand awareness, the more opportunities you'll see. It's a straightforward mechanism the team at Free Partners use. Free Partners is a brand and communications agency specialising in the insurance sector. So if you're thinking you'd like to see more opportunities, perhaps Free Partners will come to mind. Check out their three-step standout Grow Strong plan at freepartners.com. I mean, some of the naysayers at the beginning would say, well, that's fine, it's all fine and dandy, but convicts will never attract good people. Well, I mean, that clearly hasn't been the case. And uh, the level of interest by potential employees shown in convicts has been pretty much unprecedented. You know, something like 75% of the people who join convicts ask for a job. And I think that speaks to the demise of the industry as a whole, actually. Many, many underwriters are feeling very dissatisfied with their current lot. And they think that the senior management is too distant from the underwriting they don't understand. They feel unloved, uncared for. And whether all the things are are fair or not doesn't much matter. If people have that perception, perception becomes reality. So the one thing that has been a real pleasant surprise is the relative ease which we managed to attract some really good talent really quickly. In fact, that was commented on by the Grace Church Underwriting Survey of only last week, when independently said, you know, these guys have achieved in two years what some people never achieve. What's the headcount at Convex now? And, and is it how far are you in terms of um, your build-out? Do you think, yeah, you're completely done yet? Well, we're about 350-odd at the moment. On the underwriting side, pretty much complete we'll be adding people during the year and next year but there won't be that many more senior people joining i don't think because you know we've actually achieved the balance of talent that we wanted to do i mean clearly one of the challenges for us this year is keeping the back office up to speed with the front office and that is a nightmare obviously it's hard work 
And we're desperate, you know, we, we, as you know, we subcontract a lot to WNS, which takes the heat off our headcount and means that they can throw resource problems quickly, more quickly than we could have done, because we wouldn't have had the resource. But we're not looking to build an enormous employee base. I think jury's out as to how big we get. But you're not going to see the growth in headcount that you've seen in the last two years and the next two years, put it that way. Actually, on that point, you mentioned about WNS and that relationship. Now that your business plan is maturing somewhat, how's that panning out? How's that planned expense advantage? Is it starting to appear in your management accounts? Well, I think it's quite interesting as you look at different accounting standards and particularly GAAP, because GAAP, you essentially only earn the premium as you earn the exposure Whereas obviously you have the expenses all from day one. In terms of do we believe that WNS and the other things that we've done around our expense base are likely to bear fruit? Yes, absolutely. Are we kind of are we running broadly in line with where our plans were? Absolutely. Do we still believe that that will deliver an advantage? Yeah, I'd be very surprised if it didn't. And we did accelerate our employment of people starting in March of last year, we went to the group executive and then went to the board and said, look, we think this is time to be over-resourced on under-resourced and underwriting talent in particular. And therefore, we think we should um, hasten that speed of growth of talent, which we did. And we kept the new budget that we set ourselves. I don't know how you feel, Brandon. When I look back, it's one of the better things we did last year was to actually get on the front foot and increase the talent base as quickly as possible. Because, you know, when we planned this, as I think you know, you remember, Mark, you know, we talked to you about it earlier on. We were working on the inevitable change in the casualty market, and we could see that coming. And that was going to lead to probably some significant re-rating. And we saw that as an opportunity. Because the big decision then, it seems a long time ago now, is are we going too quickly? Are we a year early? All that kind of stuff going on now. As some people said to me, God, you lucky chaps, you've got just about perfect timing. Well, that's great. And I think on the county side, we claim some thought behind that. Nobody knew about COVID-19 at that stage, all the implications of it, or what it would mean to the growth of conflicts. I don't think it changes what we're trying to achieve, but it has certainly increased the speed of that achievement. Do you think that's fair, Brando? Yes, speed and certainty. And I think that was, in part, that's why we felt it was a good time to go and raise that additional capital. And I think it was also why raising that additional capital was, uh, it's never easy, but it was uh, yeah, absolutely there. Talking about capital, you've got your 3.2 billion is your own balance sheet. When we last spoke, you said that third party capital might be somewhere in your business plan, but it wasn't a plan for today or tomorrow. Now we're in tomorrow. Do you think that's any nearer? You know, this is a sort of market where you feel you could be deploying other people's capital for opportunities which might be fleeting, for example. I don't think we actually think we are in tomorrow yet. <laughs> that analogy. It does feel like today to me. <laughs> it's right. You know, I think we're working flat out to build the business and build all the infrastructure around the business. At the same time, making certain we are at the forefront of technology as well. There's a lot going on, and um, Rome wasn't built in the day. You can only do too much at one time, and I think we still feel we're very much in today at the moment, and we're hoping that by the end of this year it will feel better, and we're hoping by the end of the following year that we can maybe just 
breathed a sigh of relief. He said, oh, we got through that first bit. That It's a tough bit. When premiums start properly earning through and you feel you can actually see some cash coming in your direction. Well, as Brand said, no, and the thing is, gap accounting is not the friend of a startup business. It really isn't. If you've got all the expenses front-loaded, you've only got part of the premium in the books against the losses you've made, and the numbers have a tendency to look pretty ropey to start off with. I remember going all the way back to when we set up Catlin back in 84, and then that was on the three-year accounting system. Well, on that basis, our first year, closed after three and a half years, made an underwriting profit. Now, it's going to be very interesting to see when we look at the underwriting year numbers, whether we do the same thing in the first year, and we'll know that in two and a half years' time. We know what we like the outcome to be, but it is a frustrating time because you've got to read through the numbers very carefully to understand what's happening on the underlying business, and it's not easy to do. Another thing that has been happening in the marketplace, we've had ventures such as Brits Key, Syndicate Algorithmic Underwriting, and let's say facilitation-focused, low-touch, again, underwriting ventures, they're all looking to cut costs where it can be removed easily. Again, that sounds to be right up your street in your leaner model. Or at the moment, I just wondered if, if it is of interest to you that you're looking to see if you could do something similar, or is it you're currently too busy actually building Convex right now to be doing something second stage like that? Well, we set up a store to be a leading underwriter. That's what we set out to do. We're working well in that direction. And if you're going to do that, it's a rather different model to the ones that you're talking about. Now, we are looking at other ways of doing business. Do you want to talk about what we're looking at, Brando? Yeah, so we have a unit called Digital Underwriting that is engaging with distribution largely to look at essentially the automatic underwriting of homogeneous and more SME-type business. So to essentially to be a partner across that value chain. I have a certain scepticism about algorithmic underwriting in London, just really because of the intermediaries. And they're part of what the London brokers bring is the is an ability to find the soft underbelly of any marketplace. And so you're sort of challenging the algorithms against those abilities. Historically, that's and people have not done exactly what these companies are trying to do, but Historically, when you find yourself in that soft underbelly role, it's not worked terribly well. Do you think um, it's something about the nature of specialty business with low volume, high potential severity, that you don't really have enough data, that's better to stick with things that are homogeneous, that you can you know, you get enough data? As we said before many times, some types of insurance look like a commodity, starting with personal lines and then going up to SME. Once you get into the specialist marketplace, you get beyond SME or mid-size SME. Basically, the people who buy the cover that protects their balance sheet are buying something that deals with their complexity and tries to get the risk transfer in the right place. I can't see how you're ever going to replace human intervention with algorithms in that circumstance. And yes, to your point, the data is not statistically robust enough to rely on it. That you don't have enough of the same issue to compare and contrast realistically. Yeah, and I think it's it's not the obvious place to start with the most complicated, highly volatile business lines. What about with things that aggregate a lot of Internet of Things data, for example, I don't know, sort of turbine output information or the sort of thing that you see with Rolls-Royce, it's aero engines that are all effectively online. 
and that the engineers can see all those motors running simultaneously at any given moment in time. That might be something that would give you enough data. Absolutely. You're starting to see it anyway, aren't you? With a number of companies starting to essentially bundle insurance product with other things. I think Chubb recently announced an initiative which struck me as being very smart, particularly given their scale and reach, that sell the insurance as an add-on and an enhancement to another product. And whether that's a maintenance policy from Rolls-Royce or some other thing, I just think it's it's an interesting way to access other distributions and other channels of risk. There would still be the need for the insurer to be sitting behind all of that because for all the unknown unknowns that even the cleverest engineers at Rolls-Royce don't know yet, and that you'll be there for all those sort of eventualities. If you look at the motor manufacturers, you've got actually got a situation where some of them chose to retain a lot of the risk, some of them chose to set up captives and then transfer the extremities of the risk. So predicting the appetite for individual businesses to put insurance as part of their core competencies and dedicate capital to it, well, some will. The majority will go, no, that's in the too difficult box. The regulatory requirements, the use of capital, our ability to predict the risks will essentially keep them out of those businesses. Even if you've got to stay ahead of the game, you said it's value proposition better. You've heard me say this before, Mark. I still think it's the case. And we've got to make certain that we are relevant to our client. And irrelevance is not just underwriting, actually. It starts with risk mitigation, risk aggregation, risk management. And then as you go through that, at the end, risk transfer under certain circumstances. Now, it's amazing when you look at Fortune 500, that the risk appetite per company can be quite different. And that's what makes the world go around. It's what makes an interesting place to live in. It's also what makes the underwriting challenge interesting because different clients perceive they have different needs and worry about different things. And I think our job is to make certain we can help them understand their risk and then offer them risk transfer where we think it's appropriate for them. And essentially what we're trying to do is offer them, if you like, extra capital more cheaply than they could do it themselves. At the same time, give a return to our shareholders. Just to wrap up on this sort of future of underwriting type theme that we've been talking about, what do you think these different ventures, this, some of this automatic underwriting, algorithmic underwriting, or whatever else it is, digital underwriting, how do you think that's going to change? So if we looked in 10 years' time, how much different would the syndicated global market be? I mean, big question. I think digital underwriting is different from the other examples you cited there. I'd be very surprised personally if digital underwriting for certain classes of business wasn't at the forefront within 10 years from now. Some would say much quicker than that, actually. Some brokers would say much quicker than that. That is going to happen. The train has left the station on that one. As Brandon said earlier on, you know, there's a difference between follow capacity, or as he called it, the soft belly, and leading capacity. And our alpha, if you like, is actually where human intervention is required. But at the same time, taking benefit of technological advancement and better use of data and data capture. I mean, some of the stuff that we're getting on board now is just mind-boggling for me. I'm an old-fashioned Luddite, really, at heart. And I look at some of this stuff and think, wow, we've got this thing called Henry. Talk about Henry, Brando. I mean, Steve is very impressed with it. I, I like it quite a lot. But it's essentially a way of automatically digesting market standard slips. So you can spot clauses and 
lot of differences between clauses and, and those types of things. So it's an interesting area. I'm hopeful that within a relatively short period of time, Convex and other London market insurers will be getting most of their data digitally, either through uh, essentially being able to read the documents accurately or by other means. But coming back to your earlier question, yes, I think in 10 years' time, there will be still a place for, particularly in the complex risk arena, for syndication, because it builds resilience. Because if everybody's on everything, then there's, or you've just got 100% markets and you've got somebody with 100% and other people without with zero. It's just a, it's a much more resilient model for both buyers and sellers of risk. And I think that as you get complexity in bespoking, those need actual conversations with individuals. So I see the model will be individuals supported by a lot more data, insight and technology than they currently have for the complex higher value risks those risks where they want to engage with their insurers or reinsurers. And I see it as being, for the more homogeneous stuff, they just want simplicity, they want speed of uh, transaction, and they want to resolve the transaction cost, which is obviously a real albatross around the neck of the London market. And I think that in part, Convex was built to uh, essentially be ready for that change because a lot of the markets are, they're trying to do both. And they're trying to do both using the same systems and the same underwriters. And that doesn't make a huge amount of sense. I think the question we've got to ask ourselves as you look forward 10 years is where do you need human intervention? Where will you always need human intervention? And when does human intervention become superfluous, costly, and less effective? So that the capture of data will increasingly need less and less human intervention. And the winners on that will be the carriers that get that and work out how they can use it. That will save costs. It will give them greater quality of data and a greater ability to manipulate that data and critique it in ways they can't do today. And I think one has to take one step back and say, okay, fine, life is going to change, no doubt about that at all. Human intervention will always be required for certain things, without doubt, as Brandon just explained. But there are other things that we just don't need to do now, and it's, it'd be foolish to do. You don't have to do that, and the machinery can do it for you. You've had some news. You've done a deal with SCORE for licensing and, and a relationship there to so do business in the European economic area. Can you just run us through the details of that? Well, it's not in the public domain in finer detail. But what I will say is that Denny Kessler, very, who I've known for 25 years, very kindly said to me at the get-go, we want support, can we help you? And uh, basically, out of the goodness of their heart, they've uh, allowed us to be able to participate in European business until such time as we've got ourselves sorted out and licensed in Europe. Now, we're well on the way on that journey. SCORE are well aware of what we're doing, and we have an ongoing, want to have an ongoing relationship with SCORE. And we're very grateful for their support at this time. Not everybody has done that. It sort of goes back to the earlier question, where do you need people? when you need judgment. And clearly, SCORE have made a judgment based on their relationship with Stephen going back many years. And they've gone, this is going to work. They're not in the business of doing this for everybody. They've made that assessment and gone, okay, we'll make it happen. And I think that's, I mean, as Stephen said, we're very grateful. This is really just another example of long-term relationships and um, 
I suppose score you know very sensibly will buy itself a lot of goodwill I presume as your future reinsurer of choice they'll buy themselves some goodwill and I'm sure some of our profits will head their way as well I mean it's um, not a bad thing no absolutely not well, another big thing that happened since we last spoke, which we've been quietly avoiding, is the Aon Willis steel. So here's my sort of standard question to everybody is, but if you were the competition regulator or regulators, as it seems to be now around the world, would you just wave it through? Would you be happy with the deal? I don't really think we should comment on that at this stage. I mean, it's still subject to outcome. And uh, it's been very difficult for Willis employees, I think, in particular, and my heart goes out to them as they lived through what is over 12 months of uncertainty, which is a great shame, actually. But I think at the moment to comment until we know what the outcome is, is probably inappropriate. But in general, you, do you have a philosophy that we've seen market consolidation over our, all of our careers, probably, in many senses of broker consolidation? Are you just sure that the market will just sort of some brokers will get bigger, then that breaks off brokers and smaller brokers get bigger as well and gives them opportunity. Are you happy with the sort of generally that there's still a competitive market out there? There's definitely a competitive market out there, without doubt. But I mean, it is a marketplace and companies rise and fall in a marketplace. And if there becomes too much of a concentration, the marketplace reacts to that. The client reacts to that. The underwriter reacts to that. It, and all the time I've been involved, it's been going on the whole time. But the idea that there will only be two large brokers around the entire world to place business on a wholesale business is insane, in my view. Another old chestnut question for you, Stephen. Given your Lloyd's heritage, that I know it's not necessarily the same emotional attachment for Paul, the last time we had this discussion about whether you might ever consider asking to join and go back into Lloyd's in some shape or form, you said it was, certainly wasn't appropriate because, of course, Lloyd's at the time, a couple of years ago, was still in full retrenchment mode and re-underwriting mode. And you, of course, in build-out growth mode. Now, we seem to be at a different juncture where Lloyd's, for the first time, is now projecting you know, a 2021 increase in capacity, looking tentatively to start to grow again. Would you have another look now that the timing seems to be better? I think... Um... Your opening comment is right. I have a stronger emotional attachment to Lloyd's than Paul does, and that's just historical circumstance. But that emotional attachment doesn't override commercial reality. I know John Neal well. I've known him for a long time, way before he was CEO of Lloyd's. And I was chatting the other day, and he asked me how we're doing, and I said, well, actually, we've not done bad. You know, billion dollars worth of premium written this year, probably double that next year. And I said, you know, the truth of the matter is we could never have done that in Lloyd's, could we? And he said, no, you couldn't. And I kind of think that's their problem, not our problem, actually. I have deep sympathy for John and Bruce Carnegie-Brown, but they picked up a problem child, which is overdue for some remedial action. And I think it's very difficult when you're doing remedial action to actually, at the same time, have exceptions for people going forward. We can see that and we respect that. Look, Lloyd's is a city institution, has been for 350 years. It has a value. It has a value in the city. It has a value in the insurance marketplace. You could argue now that it's punching above its weight, but it's not nothing like the size it used to be. It's a percentage of the overall marketplace. It is still, the at the moment, the centre of a lot of what goes on in London in the subscription marketplace. But the fact that we've achieved what we are achieving actually tells us that we actually don't have to be there. We're still seeing traffic coming through. 
I mean, one of the reasons we chose to be in the scalpel, because it wasn't the cheapest choice we made, was because it was the proximity to Willis, to Lloyd's, and to Aon. Dare I say it, brokers inherently are lazy. They don't want to walk any further than they have to walk to get something placed. It's what happens. So we don't feel the need to join Lloyd's at the moment. That's not to say we won't in the future. And please don't read in that. We want to see Lloyd's fail. So we don't. We think it should and needs to survive. But honestly, it is still a work in progress. I think there's a line of vision that we didn't have maybe a couple of years ago. But it actually, it's still a site of vision as opposed to being absolute reality. And uh, I'm just hoping that John and his... I mean, that chap, Patrick, who's gone through a visa of Lloyd's, is a great thing for Lloyd's. He's a very capable person. And when they can start attracting talent like that, that's a good step in the right direction. Lloyd's is the same with anyone else. It starts with the talent base. Talking about COVID and how it's affected all of the way that we do business in, in practical terms, and we're still on a Zoom chat, and we'd dearly love to have this chat in person again at your nice new office, and, and oh, an expensive office as well, yes. Lloyd's is doing a consultation of the underwriting room, obviously a room that you've sat in many, many years of your career. And obviously you have your own equivalents just across the street. And anybody who has an EC3 office where they're trying to attract brokers, there's this consultation going on to how you would change that face-to-face underwriting environment in London. What's your take on that? If you were chipping into that consultation, what would you be doing and what are you doing for yourself in Convex just across the road? Well, here's the reality of the situation. It's much more difficult for an underwriter to say no to a broker when he's standing right next to you. Much to say no by means of a Zoom, because you can just turn the machine off, or means of an email, not reply to it. And uh, if you speak to the brokers, they will tell you, I can't wait to get back to -to face-to-face negotiation. And, you know, underwriters, we better beware. Be aware of that challenge, because it ain't going to go away. If the broker feels that by a face-to-face negotiation you get a better deal, you'll always do that. So in general, you think we can have all sorts of virtual queuing systems and other things and hybrids where you're half in the office, half out. But in the end, the big deals are always going to be brokered looking into the whites of someone's eyes. What do you think, Brando? I mean, I think there's a reason why it started in a coffee house. And that's because people like sitting down and chatting and, and then it's the chance encounters. And we know we're all missing those. It's those little conversations that spark other things off. So unless it's got that ability to actually, for people to bump into each other, to go off and have a chat, to go and have a cup of coffee or whatever else, go and have lunch, go and have dinner, unless it's got that social interaction, then it won't be successful. I remember when we were last chatting, you obviously you've got a cultural mission where you're bringing 350 people together and you'd have hired many of these people without having met them face to face yet. You said at the time when you were launching, you wanted to build a culture that was open, flexible, and lots of fun. And so how hard has that been to do during 12 months of lockdown on and off? Good question. And the answer is exceptionally difficult. We have worked super hard at it. We had to. There's no other insurance entity in London that has employed as a higher percentage of its staff virtually than we have. And therefore, we've had to work really hard. Our marketing guys and our HR guys have been finding ways to... Amuse and delight. I've just done... We've divided the company into nine houses, as in school houses, which are cross-pollinated. And we gave every household a bottle of champagne. And with each house, I had an hour of them with a glass of champagne, mainly to thank them and their families 
for working so hard through this difficult time. And I tell you, when you've got 40 people and you've only met about less than a third of them, getting a conversation going with that number of people virtually is not, it's not the easiest job in the world. But I can tell you that, actual fact, the people who have joined Virtue, almost to a T, say, we know you've worked really hard at making us welcome. We feel the culture, and we can't thank you enough for the effort you've put into making us welcome and the communication. And we send goodie bags around sometimes. And it's become quite a thing because the whole family, oh, that's something coming from Convex. They all gather around to open it and see what's in there. I mean, it's not of huge financial value, but it's a thought. It's a source of excitement. So there are things you can do to move the thing forward. But no, it's not the same. Would it have been easy to do it face-to-face? Much, much easier. I like the idea of it, convex turning into Hogwarts with different all the different houses and you're sort of uh, prowling the corridors like Dumbledore. Um, <laughs> <Steve>. <laughs> Maybe not. I'll that one. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to comment. I mean, yeah, we're not going to talk about the beard, but we'll just leave that. There is an enormous opportunity as people start to come back to work. I think there will be an excitement springing people's steps and an obvious relief, particularly if COVID doesn't have another kind of episode stinging its tail, which, yeah, as Stephen said, nobody, you can't predict that with certainty yet. But I think the energy that you're going to have is going to be quite special and you'll be able to do some quite interesting things with that. I suppose it's difficult for you to compare, but certainly when I've spoken to, I mean, when I had John Neal on on the podcast, for example, and others have have mentioned this, that anecdotally, the lockdown has made it difficult to bring new business in. It's made it easier, perhaps easier to renew business and have a higher retention rate of your renewal business. But it's been harder for new business productions, because particularly if it's a new idea or a new product, hard to get things off the ground without wrestling and sorting things out face to face. Does that chime with you? Well, I mean, I think it's difficult for everybody, but I mean, McGill and Partners has proven this year that you can gain new business virtually, and they have done exceptionally well on that front. And I remember talking to Steve a few months ago, and he said, we said, when COVID-19 started, he said, oh my gosh, we've put ourselves back a year. But in that fact, that didn't happen. So they proved that you can acquire business in this circumstance. And a lot of other brokers done the same it's more pronounced for something like mcgill but it's a new business new business is coming in and we are very grateful for the distribution of brokers for working so hard at finding new business and new opportunity that's not something we can easily do ourselves so it's probably what you do is the way that you do it and i suppose being open to business it doesn't matter how you do it people know that you're open for new business then they're likely to come and bring it to you i suppose it's, it's about your communication perhaps well if you think about it for the last year We've done nothing other than write new business, actually. And also, I suppose you don't have the messaging of, of having to turn away some business because, uh, you know, because you're, you're re-underwriting your portfolio or anything else. Well, don't think that we write everything we're seeing. <laughs> Very far from the case, actually. You know, is that the other part of being a startup is being shown all the rubbish business to start with? There's a fair bit of that. Just, just see if you'll bite on something that everyone knows you probably shouldn't write. Yeah. Well, I think we've come to the end of our allotted time, and I've run out of questions to ask you, although I, mean, I could spend all day sort of taking up your time, but I think you've got a business to run, you've got quite a lot of capital to deploy and a lot of staff to welcome into your organisation. So I wish you all the best with that continued effort, and I hope that you'll book some time in to come and speak to The Voice of Insurance again soon. 
Well, Mark, thank you for your continued interest. Um, it's very gratefully received. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. Thank you.